0: Well, good evening. Uh, I do thank you guys for the uh, privilege that I have to come up here and preach. I know I was mentioning to someone that I, I think I've preached here in this church uh, far more often than I do in Christ's covenant. So you guys from Christ's covenant, I don't know what you're saying by that, but uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, we can get off on a new foot here this evening. If you all would, I, uh, I would ask you to please stand with me for the reading of God's word will be this evening in Exodus chapter 28 to begin with, but there will be other texts. But Exodus chapter 28, and, and at this time we'll be reading verses 6 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. And they shall make the effort of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked, it shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together, and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take, the, take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in, order of, in, in the order of their birth, as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the, the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance." You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'd ask you to pray with me, if you would, please. Lord God, we do thank you for the precious gift that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, as we plumb the depths of the gospel and the the power of it to actually and effectually move the hearts of men, we we thank you that we can come as you have called us as the body of Christ to worship, to sit under your word, and I I thank you, Lord, that in your good pleasure and providence that you're able to strike straight blows with even very weak and bent sticks, and so we would ask you to do that here this evening, that you speak to our hearts, that you change us. And shape us into the to the image of our Savior Jesus Christ, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we have been as an uh, our fellowship working our way through the doctrines of grace in our ARF joint services, and and this evening uh, I was contemplating uh, what it would mean with uh, lots of kids here crying. And I think it's fitting that of all the doctrines of grace that we could cover, that's the one where you would expect to find the crying most often. (laughs) I have been tasked with the perennial favorite, the one that is most likely to be rejected and hated, the one most struggled with. Maybe even many of us here have struggled with it in the past or maybe are even now struggling with this notion of the doctrine of limited atonement. Now with that said, I'm not going to go about this task this evening in the way that that would normally uh, happen. I'm not going to go about it in the way that you might see where where you take various proof texts and we could string them together to come to a doctrine, which we could do, and there are many of them. But instead, what I want to do is maybe take you through this in a direction that you haven't seen. Maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. But I want to go through this doctrine from the perspective of biblical theology and through the use of biblical typology, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But first, let me make this broad statement here to kind of set up where we're going. Unless you are a universalist, and by that I mean someone who believes that every single person who has ever or will ever live is going to be saved, then you are inherently believing and holding to the doctrine of limited atonement, one way or the other. And so that simplifies the task some already. I don't think there are any universalists here, although if you are, I'm glad you're here. Maybe we can make some progress with that. But we can boil down the issue to this, I think. And I want to share this with you because many of you may have never seen this line of logic. These are the words of John Owen from his work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And he lays it out like this. He says... The Father imposed His wrath due unto, and the Son underwent punishment for either all the sins of all men, or all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. In which case it may be said if the last be true, that some of the sins of all men is what Christ died for, then all men have some sins to answer for, and so none are saved. That if the second be true, then Christ in their stead suffered for all the sins of the elect in the whole world. And this is the truth. But if the first is the case, why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? Well, you answer, because of unbelief. I ask, is this unbelief a sin or not? If it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it. Or, did he, or he did not. If he did, why must that hinder them more than, than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, he did not die for all their sins. And so hopefully you can see the logic. Now, I'm not going to do a whole lot with this, but I wanted you to understand. There's really only so many options and so many ways that this can go. We all know that hell is not an empty place. And we know that a partial payment for sin is of no value whatsoever. And that really only leaves one option if you're following Owen's line of logic. Now, I know there are many who, who would reject this line of argument and reasoning altogether. So rather than focusing here on that, on the notion of the limiting of the atonement, per se, because that's where people stumble, I want to suggest that we focus on two different aspects of the atonement that I think really clarify this doctrine. First, that it is a personal atonement, meaning that there is a specific personal application. Christ died for people personally rather than an impersonal atonement that would carry the notion that Christ simply died without respect to anyone in particular. Second, that this is a definite atonement, meaning that it absolutely accomplishes its purpose as opposed to an indefinite atonement, which would only be a hypothetical or possible thing that was laid out that depends upon something else for its completion. And it's in respect to these two aspects that I want us to now turn to the Scriptures. And so if you will, I'd ask you to look back with me once more at Exodus 28. And I had a a very long passage, but I split it in the reading. So we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 15. It, It reads... "'You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. "'In the style of the ephod you shall make it, "'of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, "'and fine twined linen you shall make it. "'It shall be square and doubled.' A span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set, it, set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row a jacinth, and an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece." The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod and you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie skillfully, lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. And so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now everybody knows where I'm going with all of this already, right? Right? what we what we read in exodus here in chapter 28 has been the description that god gave to moses and then through him to aaron and his sons about the priestly garments that the high priest was adorned with as he ministered on behalf of the people of israel before god in his holy temple And in this passage, you notice that the the instructions that are given to them are very detailed. And this is something I don't think that we can overemphasize. That's not just there for us to struggle with as we read through all of these passages. It's there for a reason. And that's because, as we will see, they pointed forward to very specific greater realities and so as we move through here, we aren't going to work through this entire passage from Exodus 28, but I do want to highlight a couple of, a couple of things for you in that. So first, you notice the two shoulder pieces that were attached to the ephod of the high priest's garment. Verse 9 said, You shall take two onyx stones and, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then I want you to make note of the breast piece. Verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And again, we see the reason. It's a very similar reason in verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place. To bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So, in two ways here, we see the very personal character of the high priest of Israel. You need to understand that. He carries the very names of the people of God on his two shoulders and on the breastplate as a remembrance every time he's ministering before the Lord. He's carrying with him the names of the tribes of Israel right there before the Lord. And likewise, Aaron wore the, the twelve tribes on the breastpiece of judgment. And it is as if in making atonement, he is bearing the judgment of the people of God, their names being born upon his heart. Now, this is significant, especially when we think about the nature of the intercessory work that the high priest performed on behalf of the entire people. And what I mean by that is when we consider what Aaron in this case was doing, he's acting as the mediator between God and his people. He's not representing Egyptians. He's not representing the Ammonites or the Perizzites or the Hittites or the Canaanites or any other other people in the land. No, he's representing God's chosen people, Israel. And it's their very names that he bears upon himself as he goes before the Lord. But now let's switch gears for a moment. We'll get into some more exciting stuff from Leviticus. If you'll turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Here in chapter 16 of Leviticus, and I'm not going to read through a whole passage again. In Leviticus chapter 16, we find God's instructions for the high priest concerning the day of atonement, which is the highest day of, of all of the festivals of Israel. The single day in the year where the high priest makes a sacrifice on behalf of the entire people in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And I'm not, as I said, not going to read the entire chapter for the sake of time. But if you notice, verses 1 through 5 describe the general aspects of this ceremony, the, the required offerings and the manner of dress that the high priest was to wear when he goes to perform this function. Then verses 6 through 10, Aaron was to make an offering for himself and for his household. And, and if, you, if you know Hebrews, you know why, right? Aaron was sinful. He's, a, he's just a man. He's the high priest, but he has, to, he has to go and offer sacrifice for himself before he's ever even able to go do anything else. And afterward, then he brings two goats before the entrance of the tabernacle where he would then cast lots over the goats. One was to be dedicated to sacrifice, and the blood that from that, that goat was offered upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies on behalf of the sins of the people. The other goat, however, was kept alive. And I want you to see what the text says here. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. inescapable, the very personal nature of what's taking place here. The high priest takes that live goat and he puts his hands upon the head of the animal and he confesses over it all the iniquities of who? Of the people of God, right? The the children of Israel. He confesses their sins. This is the very heart of substitution, right? The, The sins of the people are being placed upon this substitute, and confessed. But notice also what the goat does. All of their sins are in essence laid upon this goat in a, pic, in, in a picture, in a, in, a, in a typological way, and the goat then carries them away into the wilderness, propitiation having been made for the people for another year. Propitiation is simply wrath appeasing, right? So in this ceremony, through this whole ceremony, it is a picture of God uh, allowing a sacrifice to, to, to propitiate or atone or, or do away with the wrath, appease the very wrath of God, and not on the people. Do you, see, do you see how that ties together? Now let's jump forward to verse 29, which is the summary of the description of the Day of Atonement. It reads, "...and it shall be a statute to you forever in, that, in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and do no work." Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded." And so just a few observations before we move on. Verses 30 and 31 first. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Friends, this is an accomplished fact that's taking place on this day. Atonement is made. And it is of such a nature that you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Then verse 34 adds this. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And so to kind of sum up where we're at, what we've seen thus far, we have seen that Israel's high priest is just that. He's Israel's high priest. He's part of the people. He comes from the people. And in His duties as the priest, He specifically carries the people by name as both a remembrance and as a, as a, a mediator, if you will, before the Lord in His holy temple. Likewise, In this mediatorial role as representative of the people to God, he of all the people brings the offering of sacrifice for himself and then all the people on the day of atonement sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and then figuratively laying the sins of the people upon the scapegoat where they are carried away into the wilderness. And atonement was made once a year in perpetuity. "...for the cleansing of the people before the Lord." Now hopefully you can see, and you're already kind of seeing where this is going to go, and how this pertains to the doctrine of limited atonement. So remember that the rites and practices of Israel are are not, and never were meant to be, the end in and of themselves. And we know that, right? Because they are are no longer being done. they're, They're finished. They were types which were intended to point us forward to greater realities... And while the types are not identical with the antitype, the the type is the thing that's the picture. The antitype is the greater thing that's being pictured. Now, the antitype and the types are not identical, but they do bear very real and specific resemblance. Otherwise, there would be no purpose for the type, right? Because when we look at the type, we're supposed to see the greater antitype. Does that make sense? And so with that now, Let's shift our focus to the greater realities that Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16 point us towards. And to do that, we need to go to the book of Hebrews. But before we read, let me do a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. And I know this is probably not new to most of you. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. And it's a sermon all about Jesus Christ, who is greater in every way than all the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. He is pictured in in the beginning of the book as the Creator, as the final word of revelation from God to man who is greater than angels, greater than Old Testament prophets, greater than Moses, and more important for our goal this evening, which is to establish the truth of limited atonement. Christ is the greater high priest who offers up a better sacrifice which makes him the better mediator of a better covenant based upon better promises. And now with that said, what we really could do if we wanted to was just open our Bibles to to Hebrews chapter 7 and just read all the way through to Hebrews chapter 10. But I'm not going to do that this evening. Instead, what I want to do is focus on a specific portion. So we're going to look at chapter 9 and we'll begin in verse 1. Hebrews 9 verse 1. And it reads, "...now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place." Behind the second curtain was a section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And so here the preacher of Hebrews is drawing out a little bit of what we already took note of in Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16, though he's really just giving us the general picture of these things, of the Mosaic Covenant ceremonial aspects and regulations, and so really he's, what he's doing is putting the entire system up in some reform, so that he may now take us beyond that to the greater. And we'll see that in verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, "...not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first. And so Christ as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a different order but a greater order, he didn't enter the lesser type. But instead the preacher emphasizes he entered into the greater Holy of Holies, of which the former in Israel's tabernacle and temple was just a type. And he did so once for all time, not by means of typological or temporal sacrifices. All the things which we just read in Leviticus 16, where Aaron made sacrifices for himself and the temple and the altar, and then finally for the people. But friends, Christ had no need for any sacrifice for himself. Instead, when he entered into the true Holy of Holies, He did so by way of His own blood. And notice how the preacher describes what that accomplishes. This is important. He says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. And don't miss the result of that. Thus, securing an eternal redemption. There was something actually accomplished in this sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It secured eternal redemption. And I want you to understand, it doesn't merely make redemption possible. This isn't a hypothetical atonement. It secured eternal redemption in the same way that on the cross, Christ doesn't cry out, it is possible. He doesn't do that. He says, it is finished. Now also notice the contrast that the preacher makes in his argument from the lesser to the greater now. And this is important to keep in mind. He says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... And this is what we read about in Leviticus 16 and understand that there really was a sanctification that was made there. There was a a cleansing on that temporal level. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is getting at. In other words, even in Leviticus, something was actually accomplished. It wasn't just intended to be what the greater actually is. Do you see that? And it couldn't be. This is why the preacher of Hebrews continues saying this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see that? What Christ did was much, much more. He offered the greater sacrifice. He offered Himself. And it's for this reason then that the preacher brings us to the point, right? He says, therefore, and we know what that means. He's bringing this to a conclusion. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. In the very same way that those Aaronic priests represented the people of God, wearing their very names upon their shoulders and upon their heart, Christ Jesus, the greater mediator, acts as a covenant representative and he carries not just indiscriminate notional ideas, he carries the names of his people before the very throne of grace, bearing their judgment upon himself so that those who are called which is just shorthand for the chosen people of God, which if you don't know, chosen people, that's what election means, right? Chosen. That the chosen people of God may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And don't miss the fact that in himself he acts as the sin offering, taking the sins of the people upon himself, bearing their wrath in the very same way as that goat who was slain and his blood carried in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. The blood covering the testimony of the sins of Israel. That's what was in the ark, right? The the Ten Commandments and and Aaron's rod and the manna, all ways in which the people of Israel rebelled against the God who they proclaimed to be in covenant with and serve. Likewise, Christ is also the scapegoat who takes those sins outside the camp and carries them away as far as the east is to the west. But understand, friends, That just as it is in the lesser type where the high priest ministers on behalf of a specific people and the sacrifices and atonement were made for that people, the greater high priest ministers on behalf of a people of God as well. John chapter 10, Christ makes this statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. who's also the good shepherd of the sheep. He knows His people, and they know Him. And it's for these people that He lays down His life. Likewise, John 11, we read this. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so don't miss the irony of this passage, that it was the high priest who himself made this statement. And notice John's commentary on, the, on this event. He said, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather who? Into one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad. In other words, if we would say it again, Christ Jesus died for his people, Jews and Gentiles, So Christ's ministry as high priest is personal. He dies with intention, not haphazardly in the hopes that some will possibly come to him in faith and trust, but really and truly he offers himself like the song that we sing at times, uh, Before the Throne of God Above, and I asked Blake if he would play it, but he didn't do it for me. But what does it say there? It says that we have a, a high priest before the throne of God above and our names are graven on His hands and our names are written on His heart. You can see that in the Old Testament picture and you can see it in Christ. In the same manner we now come back to Hebrews 9 verse 23 where it says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is... He has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And I want you to pay particular attention to verses 26-28. through Christ appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to do what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself, which of necessity implies that His sacrifice was absolutely and utterly effective. He doesn't offer Himself over and over like the sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant, but dies once, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Do you see how this how this? naturally fits and flows right into Owen's argument that we made in the very beginning. If Christ puts away sin by His own sacrifice, and if He died for all the sins of all men without exception, then all men would be cleansed and forgiven, wouldn't they? But that's not the case. And the preacher of Hebrews confirms that for us. Verses 27 and 28 says this, "...and just as it's appointed for man to die once..." And after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And those for whom He died, they will... Without fail, before, known, predestined, called, and justified, and glorified. This Part of one of the things when we start dealing with the doctrines of grace, you very quickly find that if you're going to hold one, you're going to hold them all because they're so intertwined that you can't have them apart and separate. They don't fit. The, the, the scriptures are consistent from beginning to end. But now having walked through the connection between the nature of the Aaronic priesthood and their sacrificial work with Christ as the greater priest and the more perfect atoning sacrifice, the question that remains is, what do we then do with this doctrine? Why is it so important? Well, in answer to that, let me just say this. Christian, this doctrine, when you think about what is actually being said here, this is the very lifeblood of your assurance before God. The very foundation of all our hope and the gospel. Do you see that? Behind this doctrine is the, 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 the whole notion of substitutionary atonement without which we are all hopelessly and helplessly lost. Because what it demonstrates is that our high priest actually accomplished what it is that he set out to do. He came to live in perfect obedience and to die as a substitute in order to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession. He didn't die to make it possible. His death in our place wasn't a hypothetical death. Christ's atonement with absolute certainty and efficacy perfectly accomplishes what it was intended to do. And I want to finish with the words of Charles Spurgeon on this matter. It's a long quote, but I want to read it because I thought it was was a good quote. And Spurgeon's always good for for getting to the heart of things. It's a lengthy quote, and it comes from a sermon on the death of Christ. And he said this, and this will be where we wrap up. There are in the world many theories of atonement, but I cannot see any atonement in any one except in this doctrine of substitution. Many divines say that Christ did something when He died that enabled God to be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. What that something is, they do not tell us. They believe in an atonement made for everybody, but then their atonement is just this. They believe that Judas was atoned for just as much as Peter. They believe that the damned in hell were as much an object of Jesus Christ's satisfaction as the saved in heaven. And though they do not say it in proper words, yet they must mean it, for it is a fair inference that in the case of multitudes, Christ died in vain, for He died for them all, they say, and yet so ineffectual was His dying for them, that though He died for them, they are damned afterward. Now notice where he takes this. Now such an atonement I despise, I reject it. I may be called antinomian or Calvinist for preaching a limited atonement, but I had rather believe a limited atonement that's efficacious for all men for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that is not efficacious for anybody except the will of man be joined with it. Why, my brethren, if we were only so far atoned for by the death of Christ that any one of us might afterward save himself, oh, Christ's atonement were not worth a farthing. For there is no man of us can save himself. No, not under the gospel, for if I am to be saved by faith, if that is if that faith is to be my own act, unassisted by the Holy Spirit, I am as unable to save myself by faith as to save myself by good works. And after all, though men call this a limited atonement, it is as effectual as their own fallacious and rotten redemptions can pretend to be. He he gets right to it many times. And this is why I like to quote him, because it's him saying it, not me, right? (laughs) But do you know the limit of it? Christ hath bought a multitude that no man can number. The limit of it is just this. He has died for sinners. Whoever in this congregation inwardly and sorrowfully knows himself to be a sinner, Christ died for him. Whoever seeks Christ shall know Christ died for him. For our sense of need of Christ and our seeking after Christ are infallible proofs that Christ died for us. And Mark, here is something substantial. The Arminian says Christ died for him, and then poor man, he has but small consolation therefrom. For he says, ah, Christ died for me, that doesn't prove much. It only proves I may be saved if I mind what I'm after. I may perhaps forget myself, I may run into sin, and I may perish. Christ has done a good deal for me, but not quite enough unless I do something. But the man who receives the Bible as it is, he says, Christ died for me. Then my eternal life is sure. I know, he says, that Christ cannot be punished in a man's stead and the man be punished afterwards. No. He says, I believe in a just God. And if God be just, he will not punish Christ first and then punish men afterwards. No, my Savior died. And now I'm free from every demand of God's vengeance, and I can walk through this world secure. No thunderbolt can smite me, and I can die absolutely certain that for me there is no flame of hell and no pit digged for Christ, my ransom, suffered in my stead, and therefore I am clean delivered. O glorious doctrine, I wish to die preaching it. And that's the importance of this doctrine. Friends, Christ either died for us or He didn't. But we know He did. And praise be to God for that. Pray with me if you would. Lord God, we are humbled by this great work that You have done in saving for Yourself a people. Lord, we know You're sovereign over all things. You, you steer the hearts of kings. You raise up kingdoms and You bring them down. You, you work all things according to the counsel of Your will. You've created even the wicked for the day of evil. And yet, Lord, we know that we were all evil if the truth were told and our hearts were laid bare before You. And yet, in Your great mercy, You save us. And we know that's a work that only You can do. We thank you that this this sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that he did so knowing each one of us and carrying us like a, a wounded lamb upon his very shoulders into the very throne room of God, right before the very throne of grace. We're grateful for this doctrine. Lord, help us to Hold fast to it. Let it be the anchor of our souls that holds us in in assurance and steers us in, in, in good directions and towards greener pastures and eternal inheritances. We just thank You for these things, Lord. We praise You. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray this evening. Amen.